All right, everybody, welcome to a new episode on my channel, The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, and today I'm joined by Dr. Hugo Mercier. He's a research scientist at the Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique, Institut Janico, that is the National Center for Scientific Research in France, where he works with the Evolution and Social Cognition team. Most of his work so far has focused on the function and workings of reasoning. Together with Dan Sperber, he wrote a book that develops and extends the argumentative the theory of reasoning called The Enigma of Reason. So, Dr. Mercier, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so the first question I would like to ask you, uh, first, I thought about asking you what is reason? But I guess that we should start off by uh, talking a little bit about um, how reason has evolved, because I mean, since it is a component of our cognitive system, and uh, nowadays, at least from an evolutionary perspective, we deal with the several cognitive components or modules as as the result of evolutionary processes. So uh, how has it evolved and what is the function that it serves? So um, there is no consensus on, on that question, but the, the, um, the theory that um, Dan Sperber and I have been developing is that um, human reason serves um, mostly social purposes. And in particular, we think that um, that reason evolved to serve two main functions. Uh, one is to exchange just justifications, so to justify your, your actions or your thoughts, and to evaluate other people's justifications. And the other is to argue. So not to argue in the sense of having a shouting match, but to argue in the sense of exchanging arguments so that I can try to convince you of something and you can evaluate my arguments and decide if they're good enough um, to be persuaded. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. So, uh, from that point of view, reason really departs from the, the traditional notion that we have of it as being something that we have that would allow uh, by itself for us to get to uh, objective truth, let's say. Well, I, I think the main... So, so there is what, what we've termed like an intellectualist tradition that um, sees reason indeed as a tool for uh, reaching better decisions or, um, or reaching better beliefs, standard beliefs. Um, but, but what that tradition emphasizes is that it, reason is supposed to achieve these ends pretty much on, on our own. So each individual reasoner, by kind of thinking things through carefully, um, and it's supposed to, to, to reach these ends, so to, to make better decisions and to arrive at, uh, at standard beliefs. And so we're not saying that reason doesn't help the overall goal of arriving at, at, at better decisions and, and, and standard beliefs, but uh, what we're saying is that it, it usually does this in a social context when you're exchanging arguments and, and reasons uh, with others rather than on your own. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just before we get uh, a bit more specific about it, let me just ask you to explain, uh, because I think this is important for this conversation, uh, could you explain what is a cognitive module? And perhaps since you and Dan Sperber refer to that example in your book, uh, 
perhaps talk a little bit about the example of the desert, the desert and navigational system. So, um, there are several ways of, of looking at how the mind works, as a, like in a very kind of broad strokes. Um, in some models, um, the mind would be, going to exaggerate a bit, um, like a kind of one big mechanism, or like a lot of the brain would be, you know, sort of one big mechanism that would um, that wouldn't have easily identifiable um, subparts. So it would be you know, like a big neural net, and and its sheer size would allow it to to solve the, the very complex problems that um, humans are able to solve. Um, an alternative view, and these are really kind of two two ends of a continuum is that um, the human mind is made up of uh, individual modules, um, so they would be partially independent mechanisms, and um, each of them would, um, as the name suggests, work in, in mostly in isolation from other mechanisms. So the term module is kind of fraught in psychology because um, since it's been either kind of introduced or popularized by, by Jerry Fodder in the early 80s, um, it came with, a, with a, when it was introduced rather, it came with a, with a rather strict set of criteria for what would count as a module. So it had to be essentially innate, it had to have a very kind of specific neurological location. It had to be mandatory so that as soon as the right stimulus would, would arrive, the module would, would, take, would take effect. Um, and as it so happens, essentially none of that works. Um, and so the, the, the conditions for what counts as a module have been uh, very much relaxed. And the main component that remains now is um, informational encapsulation, which means that, you know, you can think of the module as a, sorry, as, a, as, a, as an information processing mechanism. So you have some kind of input that gets in, like, you know, you have, like as if you're typing something on your computer, and then it's going to, to process the information and deliver some kind of output that is uh, better in some way that is kind of informationally enriched. You're kind of adding something to it. And uh, like, you know, like a word processor could tell you if there was a, a mistake or a spelling mistake in what you've written. And, um, and the idea of informational encapsulation is that once, um, once the stimulus arrive, kind of arrives, which is the module, and the module is activated to a given extent because it's, you know, it seems to be relevant at that point, um, then it's going to, to take its course independently of whatever else is happening in the system. Um, so it's not going to be influenced by like higher level processes. It's not going to be influenced by other mechanisms that might go, be going on in, in parallel. So, um, so the reason we think that kind of I mean, people who, de who defend a kind of a modularist perspective, uh, one of the reasons they think it's, it's correct is that um, it's hard to imagine how when big mechanism would work. And essentially everything we seem to observe in nature is, is very highly modular, everything that works. So if you look at you know, a cell, it's very modular. Um, if you look at you know, obviously bodies with their organs and their layers and everything is are very modular. Um, anything that is, any complex artifact is also modular. So you know, any piece of code is can be extremely highly modular if you want to be able to understand it and to change it when, when something doesn't work. Um, and so and another advantage of modularity is that it allows um, bringing in kind of, so one of one of the things that modules do is that they encapsulate some information from the outside. So, um, 
what happens is that the, the, the way the information is processed by being kind of always the same for a given stimulus, it allows you to, to, um, to, to, to get some information that was, um, that was kind of, it allows you to, to save time in a way, it's a heuristic that um, stops you having to recalculate everything every time. So you're just relying on information that's, that's already there. Mm -hmm. Okay, so according to this approach that you have to reasoning, uh, would you say that it still makes sense what people do most of the time when they, for example, differentiate reasoning from rationalizing? That is, some um, many times people simply make a decision or say something and then only after the fact do they try to come up with reasons to justify what they've just done. So, uh, but but does it make sense to uh, differentiate reasoning from this process? So, not from our point of view. So we're working on cognitive psychologists and, and we're, we're taking very much like a, not a normative stance, but a descriptive one. Then our point would be that it is the same cognitive mechanisms that create rationalizations than those that create kind of what you could see as higher order forms of reason, like, you know, mathematical arguments or something. Um, so that doesn't mean that there are differences in quality in terms of how how good of a reason something is going to be. So you can have really wild rationalizations that are going to be extremely unconvincing. You can have rationalizations that have nothing to do whatsoever with, with the actual causes of, of your actions, for instance, where, where others will match the actual causes relatively closely. Um, so there are differences of quality, uh, but in terms of the processes, um, the process is going to be essentially the same, the cognitive mechanism that, that, that allows you to give rationalizations and any other types of reasons is going to be the same. Mm -hmm. Yes, and another point that I, that I think it is important to consider, and you also refer to this in your book, is the fact that people don't really have access to the cognitive processes that go around in their minds, that is, most of our cognition operates at a subconscious level, correct? Yes. So, we have some cognitive mechanisms of which we are not, uh, we're not aware at all. So, let's say when you're, when, you're, when you're seeing something, you're not aware of all the, the, the small steps that get you from, you know, this kind of 2D, you know, stream of photons that's sitting your retina to this rich representation you have access to consciously. So all of the intermediate layers are completely unavailable to consciousness. And then for everything that does hit consciousness, um, you're not aware of the antecedents. So if, you know, if you see someone for the first time and and somehow you don't, you know, that person doesn't feel right, you don't trust them. Um, oftentimes it's hard to pinpoint exactly why that's the case. And then even if you're some, somehow able to say, you know, to have some idea of why you don't, you don't trust them, um, it's, it's kind of a reconstruction after the fact rather than, uh, it's not as if you're noticing something and then, oh yeah, because of this, I'm going to not trust them. You have the intuition and then you, you can, to some extent, try to retrace your steps. Um, and so, yeah, essentially, you know, everything has to go on um, really unconsciously. And, and the thing that we're pointing out is that um, that is also true for reason to a large extent. So in some ways, when we reason, we're aware of more things than when we engage in, in many other cognitive operations, because at least um, you're, you're aware of the, some kind of premise and some conclusion. 
So if you tell me, um, you know, you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't drive tonight, you had too much to drink, um, I can process the premise, you had too much to drink, and the conclusion, you know, I shouldn't drive tonight, and try to think whether the link is, is, is uh, sound or not. Um, but there's still a whole unconscious layer in that the intuition I will have, and that is delivered by, by our reasoning mechanisms, as to whether uh, the premise is a good reason to accept the conclusion, um, I don't know why I have this intuition. So, as in any other intuition, I can tell you, oh, yeah, that's a good reason to be driving, but I can't tell you why. So I can, as in the case of you seeing someone and um, and thinking you don't trust them, you can try to retrace your steps. So if you ask me, but you know, why don't you want to drive? I say, well, because uh, because I've had too much to drink. But why? Well, because you know I might you know get into an accident. And why? So. We can try to retrace our steps to some extent, and, and usually no one does it more than a few steps, except except if you're like a professional philosopher. Um, but it, we rarely do it, and, and and this reconstruction is not what happens when you have the initial intuition regarding the quality of the reason, and it's not it's not necessary for that intuition to to occur. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. So would you say that from a modularist point of view, a modularist point of view of the mind in this case, uh, that uh, so uh, our cognition is composed of several modules and each of them is responsible of dealing with certain types of information uh, and, and they process this information and we obtain a result from that and all of that occurs mostly subconsciously and sometimes they communicate with each other the several modules but i mean uh, the the results we get in in cognitive terms from these uh, are operate subconsciously but then something pops up uh, consciously in the form of intuitions what we would call intuitions right yes exactly yeah so some mechanisms have, as, as, as we we're saying earlier, some mechanisms are purely unconscious, so both the input and the output is unconscious. And other mechanisms have uh, a deliver kind of conscious outputs or outputs that are inaccessible to consciousness. And and that's when, yeah, that's when you have an intuition. So if someone tells you something, you have an intuition regarding what they mean. And, um, and that, intuition, that intuition comes with some kind of metacognitive feeling of confidence, like you're more or less sure that your intuition is correct. Um, and yes, and as as uh, as we we're discussing, the the same is true for reasons. So when you when someone gives you an argument, you have an intuition as to whether that's a good argument or not, and you're gonna, you can be more or less sure uh, of of your intuition. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about how you, together with Dan Sperber and others, arrived at the uh, argumentative theory of reasoning. So, uh, was it one of the first steps, the fact that um, in many psychological experiments, people give a problem, uh, uh, researchers give a problem to people for, for them to solve, and if reason would have to have worked in a way to get uh, as straight as possible to objective truth, then people would get most of the time their answers, uh, their answers right, but that doesn't really happen. And in fact, most of the time people are not really able to correctly infer the right answer. Right. So, um, so I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know partly because because um, Dan had come up with the gist of the idea um, before I met him, essentially. 
And so, um, and so the really the, the core that at the time it was really kind of argumentation that would be the main function of human reason is something that uh, that you'd have to ask him. Um, but certainly he was aware of the of, of the literature you're mentioning, and so it's it's plausible that he played a, a role in, in shaping in his uh, his thinking. Um, and certainly it does play a big role in our argument. So there's something sort of um, weird in a way about the fact that psychologists of reasoning and of, kind of judgment and decision making have been so good at creating problems that uh, that fool people. But you know, even though the, the correct solution should be extremely straightforward, it's completely logically and mathematically trivial, um, people still give the wrong answer. Most people still give the wrong answer, even if they have time, if they're incentivized, if they're smart, if they're educated, etc., etc. And um, and what's kind of interesting from our point of view, from, from our point of view is that um, that didn't stop them from still thinking that reason really should you know has this kind of individual function of uh, of helping the lone reasoner arrive at better beliefs and, and correcting our intuitions. So the very thing that again and again they showed reason didn't do in the experiments, they still thought that it was kind of its function. It was just maybe doing it extremely poorly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay, and so reason uh, also uh, operates in allowing for us to manage our reputation. So it also has a, a kind of a social function, right? Yes, no, it does have you know, social functions anyways. And one of them indeed is to, um, is to help us justify our, our beliefs and our actions. Um, it's something we you know, very much like argumentation is something we can take for granted, but that, uh, but that without which um, we would have really vastly poorer social lives. So the rationale here is that um, clearly um, cooperation is extremely important for humans and cooperation is likely sustained by some kind of partner choice mechanism. So people pick the, the right partners, people who are competent and, and fair. And, and people who don't behave that way are not going to be selected as partners and, and that's not going to be good for them. And so the whole thing works, relies on, on people being able to form accurate assessments of, of each other. So if you can't tell who is fair or who is unfair or who is competent and who is stupid, um, you can't have partner selection going and you, couldn't, you shouldn't be able to get good cooperation going as well. I mean, either. And, um, and the, the issue is that it's it's tremendously difficult to accurately assess someone else's competence or or the fairness of their actions. So you can rely on, on a lot of heuristics, but even if you see an action that appears to be unfair, so you see two people working on something together, and one of them takes maybe most of the, you know, let's say that you know they bake a cake, and most of them takes most of the cake, it might appear to be unfair, but maybe that person had actually brought all the ingredients. So, you know, if you don't have or someone, you can see someone, um, you know, um, do something that appears to be stupid, like they're, they're, you know, using a weird, like, software on their computer, but then they can explain to you that the other software has been blocked for some reason. So if you, if people weren't able to explain themselves, to, to tell to their audiences and to people who might judge them why they do the things they do, um, it would be very difficult to have an accurate assessment of other people's um, fairness or you know, morality more generally and, and competence. And the reason that um, the justification, so that's why it's so, so useful to give justifications and also why it's so useful to, to, to listen to them because, uh, because they're not purely cheap talk. So if you, if you give me a justification, 
I can assess whether the premises are true. So, you know, is it true that you, you're the one who brought all the ingredients? Is it true that the other software on your computer is, is stopping you from using the most kind of um, sensible software? And um, and then I can assess the quality. So if you know if, if the premises are true, I can assess how good of a reason, how good of a justification they, they give you for behaving in such and such way. And this way, everybody is better off. So people, are, people who are being judged are better off because they can avoid being judged uh, negatively, either as being uh, bad people or being, as being stupid. And then observers get to judge people more accurately so they can get a better idea of who they should be friends, kind of partner, uh, partners with. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you've already referred briefly to this, but uh, reason in terms of arriving at uh, sound arguments and objective truth and things like that works better when it is done in groups. So could you explain that part? Yes. Um, so according to us, um, one of the functions of reason is to, is to exchange arguments. So when two people disagree, um, one solution is to rely on trust. So you can try to figure out who is the most competent, and um, you know if whether everybody has everybody else's best interests at heart and, and try to trust them, but but clearly in many cases that's, that's not going to be sufficient because uh, because you know you don't really know what people's interests are and people might try to manipulate you and it's hard to tell who is the most competent and sometimes people who are not necessarily your friends uh, might still you know have valuable information and so it's it's would be really useful to have a way of discriminating between kind of harmful and beneficial information in a way that is much finer grained than simply relying on trust. And we think that's what um, argumentation gives you. So even if I don't trust you in particular, um, if you give me a good argument, um, I might change my mind. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's what we see in, in groups. So in what happens when people um, exchange arguments in groups um, is that is that whoever, essentially whoever has the best argument is going to win. So that works. So you need, you need some conditions for this to work. You need, you need for people to have some kind of common incentive. So if you're playing poker, you're not gonna be able to convince anybody of doing anything because it's a zero sum game and you know, that's it. Um, and ideally you want to have some disagreement because if we all agree on something, um, it's likely that nothing good is going to come of the discussion because we're just going to all kind of give arguments for that thing we all agree on and we'll, we'll end up even, even more persuaded than, than we were right at the beginning, whether we were right or not. By contrast, when, when, when these conditions are met, so when people have some kind of common incentive and they, they disagree on one point, then they will provide arguments for their point of view and the bad, the bad arguments are going to be shut down, people are going to be forced to create better arguments. And at the end of the day, or hopefully faster than this, uh, the, as I was saying, people who, will have, who have the best arguments should be able to, to carry the day and to, and to win the, the discussion. And indeed, that's what we see in a, in a great variety of, 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 of experiments. Uh, so the pattern is extremely clear when it comes to logical or mathematical problems. So if you, if you give some kind of problem for which there is a, a deductive answer, I like the kind of problems that we were referring to earlier in which most individual participants fail. If you give exactly these problems to small groups of participants, as, as long as one of them has figured it out, um, she will be able to convince the whole group that that is the right answer. Even if the other group members all agree on the, on the same wrong answer and they're really, really sure that the wrong answer is correct, 
um, whoever is right will be able to convince them. And, and you find similar patterns when people discuss a wide variety of, of things. So people make better forecasts about the economy or about politics uh, when they discuss their forecasting groups. Doctors make better medical diagnoses. Jurists make better judicial decisions. Um, jury render better verdicts. Um, students, you know, understand problems better and find find better solutions to, to the, the problems they have in school. Um, and so across a wide range of tasks, um, our documentation seems to work. So when people, then again, if people have some kind of good faith and some kind of disagreement, um, exchange arguments with each other, usually it works out quite well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that is good to know. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> okay, for, so from this perspective, uh, from this cognitive perspective, of course, would you say that uh, what people usually refer to as dual process theory, that is that we have system one and system two in our mind, in our brains, and that system one is sort of fast and frugal and to arrive very quickly at very easy solutions to, to certain problems, and system two is more deliberative, let's say, the, does this division still make sense? Well, not so much according to us, no, in that at least the, the division we're introducing between, between reason and, and other intuitions is pretty much orthogonal to the, the, the standard drill process distinction in that, um, in that in most cases reason will, be, will behave the way intuitions are supposed to behave. So when you're exchanging arguments with someone um, or when you're, even when you're reading a book to some extent, um, reason will will be will be fast. So as soon as someone gives you an argument, immediately you understand it. Um, to some extent, you can't really help yourself. So even if you're you're on the bus and you're overhearing some people talking next to you, if they exchange arguments that you find really dumb, you can't help yourself but notice. Um, it's, so it's fast. It's essentially effortless. Um, as as we were saying earlier, there is this whole um, unconscious dimension to it, so that we're not really aware of why we think that a, a given reason is good or bad. And so in many ways, reason behaves essentially exactly like, like an intuition um, in, in, the most, in the vast majority of the cases uh, that we use it in, in everyday life. By contrast, um, it's very easy to think of, of mechanisms that are you know, ex very good examples of what people usually refer to as intuitions um, that can be used in a very kind of system to fashion. So if you're, you know, if you're playing uh, where is Waldo, um, and um, and you're so you you know you're you're using some kind of face recognition or kind of person recognition mechanism, which is like you know kind of uh, poster boy for uh, for something that is purely intuitive. You still you're doing it in a way that is that is serial, that is slow, that is effortful, that is that is you know consciously controlled, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So it seems as if um, the distinction doesn't doesn't really capture. At least the distinction between between system one and system two doesn't fit very well um, in the distinction between between intuitions and, and reason as, as we define it at least. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, referring to reason, of course, people sometimes call certain uh, behaviors rational or not. So, but from an evolutionary perspective, the, uh, would it make sense to call the behaviors that maximize our fitness, that is, that, that allow for our survival and reproduction, uh, 
to, to treat them as rational or, or not? Well, I don't know. It's, a, it's really it's a semantic problem. Um, so the, the issue with doing this is that then it would just being rational just would, would be synonymous with being adaptive. So you would lose any extra meaning. Um, and um, so I see how, how people would try to resist that, that, that move. Um, but then, you know, as, as we were saying earlier, the, uh, I'm not really so interested in the normative side, so in kind of judging whether people are you know, rational or not. So from a descriptive point of view, it's not clear what that brings me. Like, I'm not sure what rational means. Um, and so given that we, we have this kind of objective-ish measure of, of fitness, as you were saying, but, you know, if, if we can't really use this, then I'm not exactly sure. So usually the way people look at it is, is if you have a good adequation between means and ends. So if, you're, if you want to achieve some goal and you use means that are completely, you know, that aren't going to do that at all, um, you're irrational. Um, which is, you know, fair enough, but, but then clearly that's, again, you know, orthogonal to the use of reason to a large extent, given that the vast majority of the cognitive mechanisms at play would be, would be intuitions. And, um, you know, again, most of the goals we have, we just achieve them purely through kind of intuitive means. Um, and so, so, yeah, it's not clear whether we'd have anything special to do that, to, to say about, about rationality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so perhaps just one last question, and since we already covered here the aspect about reason working better in groups, would you say that that is one of the reasons why the scientific enterprise works so well, because it is a collective endeavor, and also because adding to that it has a lot of checks and balances? Yes, so clearly um, discussing with one another is not enough to, to create science because people have been doing that since, you know, at least the dawn of, of philosophy. And, um, and the results have been uh, somewhat mixed, uh, let's say, until the, until the scientific revolution. Um, and so, so I think that's clearly that's necessary. So in, 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 in mathematics, some people have been successful reasoning pretty much on their own. I mean, to a large extent, you have kind of the the odd recluse who develops, you know, kind of groundbreaking theorems. Um, so that's not that's not the rule. I mean, most mathematicians still are heavily involved in, in you know, within their community. But 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 there are examples of of breakthrough uh, breakthroughs done in, in mathematics. And I think in that case, the reason is that you know you can you can anticipate all the kind of counter arguments that people might raise to your arguments because you know all the axioms out there everybody can agrees on the axioms and all the all the relevant stuff to think about is is, is a given to some extent um, by contrast in science when when whether it's not true so you have you know you have pieces of data you have perspectives that are distinct um, clearly you do need you do need that collaborative dimension you need discussion and as you are saying, this is really built into science in the in the peer review process, in lab meetings, in conferences, in, in, in everything, in the fact that scientists you know keep arguing with each other all the time. And um, and yes, I mean it's it would be hard to deny that that's an important part of uh, of science. And ironically, even um, sort of Daniel Kahneman, who who we use to some extent as as representative of that kind of system one, system two view, even though he himself. It's very kind of a bit you know, kind of cautious about um, about you know, how it's how it should be used. 
he, he does, you know, recognize that his his best uh, insights, some of his best insights, came from discussing with Amos Tversky, his his life his lifelong collaborator. And so I think Mosant has realized that to some extent. Even it's in, you know it does have its negative aspects. Clearly, you know, getting annoying reviews or you know not being able to change our colleagues' minds can be frustrating. Uh, but on the whole, you know, most scientists enjoy uh, that process of, of argumentation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. So just before we go, Dr. Mercier, would you like perhaps to share with people where they can find your work online? What are some of the best resources to do so? Yeah, I mean, I guess if you go on my website, you'll find pretty much, uh, you find there'll be links to, to, I think, all of my papers. Um, the book is available uh, in the usual places if you, whether you want to pay for it or not. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and yeah, and the, uh, yeah, the videos, I can pass interviews and whatnot, they will also be, be found at my website. So I think it's a good, uh, good place to start. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. So I will be leaving all of that in the description box of this video for the audience to go check it out if they like. Uh, and so, Dr. Mercier, again, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It was really a pleasure. Well, thank you very much indeed. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there. I would really be thankful for that. And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantal Gelinas and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.